1: Across the globe, lockdown economies are grinding to a halt. As governments see their finances savaged by the pandemic, many poor ones, also suffering from capital flight, are desperate for cash. In the past few weeks, over 90 countries have approached the International Monetary Fund, the world's crisis lender, for emergency aid. That's more than double the number that did so in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. The fund is already parceling out some loans, but with a conservative estimate of two and a half trillion dollars needed to help emerging markets weather the pandemic, has the time come for something more radical? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can the IMF bail out the global economy? My guest is the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva. Next week the fund's 189 members will meet, virtually of course, to decide how to respond to what she predicts will be the worst economic fallout since the Great Depression. Geogheva is no stranger to crisis. She spent 20 years at the World Bank, which aims to help the world's poorest and became its CEO. She's also served on the European Commission, running its humanitarian aid portfolio and responded to earthquakes in Haiti and Chile. Kristalina Geogheva, welcome to The Economist Asks.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: We're also joined by Zannie Minton-Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief, herself once an economist at the IMF.
0: Thanks for being with us, Zannie. Great to be here, Anne.
1: Kristalina, you've been in the job barely seven months. Concerns that dominated the start of your tenure, the global slowdown, international trade tensions, they seem a long way off now. How are you doing and are you running the IMF from home?
2: It is uh, indeed a uh, very dramatic change in the world we live in and it's very dramatic change uh, how we work at the IMF. We are now in a fourth week of working uh, from home and the amount of work has skyrocketed. Never in the history of the IMF we have had so many countries asking for financial support at the same time. And never it has been so critical that we are fast in responding to these requests. We are faced with with a crisis like no other. So how do we work? I can tell you about myself. I have put three devices uh, to be operational at any one time. I can chair the board meetings of the IMF uh, from home. And one more point, very important, prioritize. What we have done is to say, okay, we are in a very serious crisis. Anything that is not immediately relevant for the effectiveness of our action, we park it three months down the road. Well, some of that sounds familiar.
0: Uh, I'm sitting here also with three devices in front of me, but we're just trying to produce a newspaper. We're not trying to uh, save the world economy. And I want to move on, perhaps, to get a sense from you of the scale of this. You've, You've called it humanity's darkest hour. More than 90 countries have asked for IMF help already, countries as diverse as Peru, Ukraine, Kenya and Iran. Can you just lay out for us what are the most pressing problems they're facing and
2: which countries are most exposed? Well, the the most uh, pressing problem faced by everyone is to get health systems up to par with the demands of this crisis. Many of the countries in our membership have not been investing enough in health systems over the years. Secondly, the uh, sudden stop of the world economy is terrible everywhere, but it is much harsher on countries with large informal sectors where people virtually depend on a daily income for their families to have food on the table and where highly dense urban slums make social distancing practically impossible. Of course, like everybody else, uh, when the virus spreads, that is the uh, most significant uh, danger. On top of it, emerging markets are experiencing an outflow of capital, some $100 billion left emerging markets uh, in search of safety, And uh, for those that are uh, commodity exporters, they're being hit one more time. And last but not least, many of these countries depend on remittances. With advanced economies coming to a standstill, remittances are drying up, uh, causing additional hardship in these countries.
0: Do you get the sense, though, that emerging markets have grasped quite how bad this is going to get? I remember, you know, the IMF meetings in the autumn of 2008, at the height of the financial crisis, there was a real collective sense of crisis, of urgency, perhaps even of panic. But today, at least in public, it seems to me that many emerging markets don't seem to be sounding the alarm.
2: What uh, is uh, very noticeable about this crisis is that because it is first and foremost a health crisis, a health emergency, countries that have not yet been impacted more severely tend to not grasp with the whole magnitude of this uh, crisis. It is a crisis that is like dominoes falling. Countries already hit, they are mobilizing all they have to protect people and to protect the economy. The dominoes that haven't yet fallen, I wouldn't use the word complacent, but tend to not recognize the um, risks on them. Even if the health epidemic spares a particular country, the spillover from the sudden stop of the world economy will not spare them. And therefore, everywhere there has to be a very serious thinking about measures to be put in place as fast as possible on the largest scale possible to protect people and to protect the economy.
1: Well, let's look at the brass tax of this or the brass amounts of dollars. And at the IMF, you can count in billions and even up to trillions. The IMF has a trillion dollars in lending capacity. A fifth of that is already committed. A lot of the rest is money that you borrow from your richer members and many of them will have to reauthorize that credit line this year. So are you confident that you do have the resources right now to cope with the crisis?
2: I am fully confident in that. Let me start with the... um most important second line of defense after our quarters, the um, authority for us to borrow from members called the NAP. We got the U.S. to include authorization of doubling the NAP resources in the $2 trillion bill that Congress passed. And I'm very grateful to the U.S. Uh, for that. It sent a very important signal to the rest of the membership. It is also very clear that this commitment is there. When we turn to the membership to ask for doubling our emerging finance capacity, that the membership responded swiftly and positively. This last week, our board of directors approved it so we can go up to $100 billion emergency financing very swiftly.
1: Zania, are you convinced by that? Does that sound like the tools for the trade have been found at the IMF?
0: Well, I think there's two important questions. And, and I'd like to ask Kristalina uh, about the tools in a minute. But just in terms of quantity, just to be absolutely clear, you are absolutely certain that however deep the recession gets in the next year, and however large the number of big economies that might come to you, that you have right now enough resources to deal with it.
2: So let me put it this way. We are going to produce our world economic uh, outlook in a couple of days. And there we make projections about the depth of this crisis. Uh, It is the worst we have had since the Great Depression. In these projections, uh, we anticipate that by the um, third quarter of this year, and especially in the fourth quarter of 2020, there could be a um, start of a rebound, provided that the virus spread is under control. In that case, 2021 would be a year in which the economy will recover possibly not to the level of 2019, but quite significantly. In that context, I'm very confident that we have the resources to bridge the pre- and post-world of coronavirus. Now, what we don't know is whether the virus will indeed recede in this period of time. And we are looking into more adverse scenarios, So I wished I could answer your question definitively. But in this world of uncertainty, I do have to put this caveat. If we are talking about recession this year, recovery next year, I'm confident we have the resources to back our members that are in need of financial assistance.
1: And one phrase that we're all going to have to get our heads around if we're not used to dealing with the language, dare I say it, even occasionally jargon of the IMF, would be something called SDRs, their special drawing rights. And they've been nicknamed paper gold. They're the only true global money, a sort of IMF issued currency that can be swapped for dollars. But they've only been issued three times In their 50-year history, it's an unconventional weapon that you do have in your arsenal. You mentioned it in a speech that you've just given. Has that moment finally come?
2: Well, the um, issuance of SDRs is um, a process that takes some time. In the last uh, round of issuance in um, 2009 The board of the IMF approved it in April and the governors gave their sign-off in August. At this moment of time, our preoccupation is to use the available tools and improve these tools and deploy them as fast as possible over the next couple of months. Now, are SDRs in principle an instrument that can be used to boost liquidity and confidence? Yes, but in the context of this crisis that requires immediate determined action to build a bridge over a couple of months for developing countries, for emerging markets, using what we have ought to be our priority. It is logically the right thing to do.
1: Zani, would you go along with that? Logically the right thing to do?
0: Yes, I would. And actually, I have a specific question on that, because one of the ways uh, that one could do that, countries have... SDRs right now. And every member of the IMF gets SDRs. So a lot of SDRs are held by rich countries that don't really need them. So one way you could do this would be to have rich countries effectively lend them to countries that need them. Is that something that you are
2: pushing for? Zani, you must have worked for the IMF.
0: I
1: think she's guilty as charged on that one. I am, but it was a long time ago.
2: <laughs> I, Zani, I am so much with you on this. It falls exactly in the category of use to the maximum the tools you have. Uh, in fact, some countries have already provided their SDRs, some advanced economies that do not really need them as much as uh, developing countries need them. They have provided their SDRs to boost the lending capacity to developing countries. And this discussion is going to be advanced during our virtual spring meetings.
0: STRs are, are an arcane topic for most people, but they are something, the politics of SDRs is really interesting because to allocate them or indeed to decide what to do with them, you need to have a very large majority of the IMF's board. And the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, Kristalina, has effectively has a veto. So you really need the US on board for certainly any new allocation of SDRs. What is the U.S. position on SDRs, and and do you think it's being helpful?
2: At this point of time, uh, the uh, U.S. has been uh, very much focused on the IMF having the $1 trillion, and I think they are rightly uh, focusing on that. We need to have it now. And they have been among those uh, voices saying, use to the maximum the capacity you have. There hasn't been interest in pursuing SDRs uh, from the U.S. side. In fact, uh, they went that far to say that they are not favoring SDRs. However, the U.S. is in favor of uh, using all available tools. And in this sense, um, I don't think that there would be any issue around uh, deployment of existing SDRs for the benefit of developing countries.
1: Let's talk about developing countries and emerging markets in particular, because I know that you've laid great emphasis on that. Zani, how would you see the
0: challenge there for the IMF and the balance of its policies? Well, it it seems to me that the IMF's traditional tool, which is lending to countries that get into trouble in exchange for policy conditions, is really um, sort of only part of the answer now. And one set of countries need dollars basically quickly, liquidity and dollars. And another set of countries essentially have too much debt and are not countries that the IMF would ordinarily be willing to lend to more. So so my question, Kristalina, would be what do you do for those two sets of countries? I know there has been talk about the IMF pushing a, a swap
2: line, but you weren't allowed to do that two years ago. Very good uh, way to put it. We are discussing with our board and I'm uh quite uh, a positive, we we might have a um, a decision by the spring meetings of creating an additional liquidity provision instrument, short-term liquidity line. And uh, what it would do is for countries with sound fundamentals, it would allow them in a very flexible manner to tap into liquidity when they're stretched, when when demand on them uh, is high, and they can go in and out of this short-term liquidity line, which means that the cost on them is lower and the availability of financing from the fund for other members improves in comparison to precautionary credit line instrument where The money is locked in for a particular country for a certain period of time. There is a lot of support for this instrument. In 2017, it almost got approved and now is a great moment to bring it back and plug it into our set of instruments for countries that have sound fundamentals but are experiencing short-term liquidity crunch.
1: Well, that's true. But what about many of the poorest countries, particularly in Africa, need debt relief? Loans won't be the answer for them. And I think researchers at the fund have concluded that half of low income countries had shaky finances even before the pandemic. That's really going to get worse, they are going to need large-scale debt restructuring.
2: That is is exactly right. We have a group of countries that even before this crisis were with high debt levels, they were in uh, in or near debt distress. So what can be done? And there are three things we are pursuing. The first one is um, the call that uh, David Malpass and myself uh, made to official bilateral creditors to take a simple action of standstill still on debt service as long as the economy is in standstill. There is ongoing discussion on that. The big question there is how about private creditors? And uh, I expect that uh, within uh, the uh, G20 meeting next week, some progress to be made. The second one is uh, what about servicing the debt of these countries? To the IMF. I was very fortunate to discover that uh, during the Ebola crisis, the IMF came up with a very smart instrument called Catastrophe Containment and Relief Trust. What we are now doing is we are scaling this up significantly. We are aiming for 1.4 billion. And that would allow our poor members, the the countries that are in toughest spot, to have that ease of repayment for the duration of this crisis. These are where progress is being made. Uh, What we are going to be faced with is a a group of countries that are faced with with very significant burden of debt. And uh, that makes it very difficult for the fund to be able to help. On a country by country basis, uh, we will review that sustainability and then we will provide uh, the um, advice from the uh, fund to these countries. It is then up to the countries to initiate debt restructuring. And our expectation is uh, that um, over the next months, we will have to all very seriously, in a very sober manner, look at case by case uh, the uh, debt situation of these countries. Just to be
0: clear on this, you've had 90 plus countries come to ask you for help. We've had $100 billion flee. We're going to see the biggest global recession probably since the 1930s. How many countries are going to have to end up restructuring their debt. Surely it's in the dozens.
2: When we get to the point of reviewing each and every one of these uh, requests, uh, there would be some countries that we will have to uh, dig deeper on that sustainability. I cannot give you a number today because we are not there yet but sure there would be there would be a number of countries uh, not in the not not just a ballpark just so we dozens, get a sense of not, the magnitude uh, a very large number but i would say we would have a um, good um, probably in the 10 to 15 uh, number of countries in other words not a huge number but not uh, entirely insignificant one And before we review the specificity of each one of them, uh, it would be really premature to come to any conclusion around what is the right way to go.
1: I'm wondering about the bigger picture here. If we could just draw the lens back a a bit from that nitty gritty that you have to look at every day at the moment in terms of, of policy. There seems to be an overall lack of global leadership in this situation. We had the American president on Tuesday threatening to cut funding to the World Health Organization at a Strange time to think about that. European countries blocking the export of protective medical gear. Do you think that this pandemic is reinforcing a situation of every country for itself?
2: The evidence is somewhat more optimistic, um, I believe. What we have seen is countries massively leaning forward in terms of fiscal measures and in terms of what the central bank's can do on the monetary policy side. And they have done it in a um, sufficiently synchronized manner to make a difference. We are assessing fiscal measures of the magnitude of $8 trillion. This is, uh, in a world economy of uh, $80 uh, trillion. this is 10% of uh, global GDP. We also have seen more advancement of swap lines for emerging markets, including from the Fed. That is very helpful to everyone. This being said, is it desirable to have more of a um, unified global view bringing us all together? We have seen that um, uh, the G20 coming very strongly together in the global financial crisis did boost confidence Yes, it would be good to continue in that path. But let's remember, we are in a crisis that actually requires uh, us to stay home, not to mingle, not to come in the normal way in our meetings. Um, That is a reality that, that we also have to reflect on. I tend to think more about what next. So we have the next couple of months absolutely critical. Well, let me
0: let me push you on that a bit, Kristalina, because you say that the world is coming together, but I actually compared to 2008 it really isn't. Right now we have, you know, the president of the United States criticizing the WHO Right now, we have the US and China trading barbs as to who is to blame and who's behaved worse in this. Before there was already a trade war. Maybe the era of Zoom makes it even harder. I'm not sure how the spring meetings will be done you know, virtually. Maybe it'll be great. But I, it seems to me that we entered this crisis with a crisis of multilateralism, no, no sense of multilateralism, much less than a decade ago. And surely Zoom makes it even worse.
2: But the reality we have is uh, the reality we have. The world today is uh, a richer world than it was in uh, 2008, but it is uh, more fragmented than it was then. And let's remember that it is also a world that is more shock-prone. Are we going to muster the will to come together when we are on the other side of this crisis? Um, I would do my best and I would make sure that my institution does its best to make the case that together we are stronger than acting alone.
1: You took on this role, Chris leader with a, a mission to change the fund's long-term direction, to make it less of a club of rich nations and give other countries a voice. How much do you think the current situation is forcing you to change your ambitions for the fund's future? And And I also think, you know, what is your answer to those who say, well, the IMF has become a kind of consensus of the rich world. That criticism Mm. still lurks there, doesn't it? Even though the situation is so extreme and such pressure on you at the moment.
2: What we are doing is actually very much focused on the um, emerging markets and developing economies. And uh, my sense is that what we do in this crisis to step up and serve the whole membership is already leading to some voices in uh, the developing uh, world to actually be more welcoming of the fund as an institution and the job we do. So my determination is to make it so that through this crisis, we are seen as high value institution by everyone but in particular by those that are most vulnerable, that need the support of the fund the most.
1: Sani, what do you
0: make of that as a a graduate of this institution? Well, I, I hope very much that the institution does play that role. It's needed absolutely importantly right now. But I wanted to ask, you know, it is an organization, much of whose work is built around teams traveling to countries, meeting with government officials. So is all of that being done by Zoom? Do you think that's going to have an effect
2: on the culture of this place? And and will it loosen the fund up? <laughs> um, well, I think it is a, one of the um, opportunities of this crisis is to um, substantially modernize the way we work. Do we really need all the uh, trips to countries uh, Could some of them be substituted with uh, video conferencing? Uh, The answer, of course, is yes. We can do more without traveling to places. We are very massively stepping up our ability to provide capacity development, technical support to countries using platforms uh, rather than uh, bringing uh, people in the same room. I'm not saying we would never go back to having conferences. Of course, I do hope we will go back to that time. But you would see the fund coming out of this crisis actually more efficient, more effective. You use the uh, the word loosening up and maybe loosening up a little bit. We have created an internal platform. We call it uh, Stay Connected. Um, people post uh, short videos and you can see them doing their work in their pajamas. Uh, well, um, not exactly the image of a IMF staffer. And I think working from home, in some cases, forces us to come closer together using platforms and seeing each other as small icons on a screen.
1: I can't let you go without asking what you're doing with or without your your pajamas. I think usually with your work jacket on when it, when I see you <laughs> online. So what are you? Doing? What are you? That would that would be well, a first, one, wouldn't it? I
2: um, thing I can I can uh, bravely disclose is that I chair the board meetings. You know, obviously I make sure that I'm uh, you know presentable. But Zani, uh, you probably remember that. Um, You cannot go in the boardroom of the fund in jeans. Remember this? (laughs) Do you know, I I was far too junior to go to the boardroom. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. Since the boardroom is everybody in their homes on a screen, I guarantee you that jeans are now allowed. (laughs) Wow. The great leap forward has
1: taken place (laughs) at the IMF. Kristalina Georgovic, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Zanny Minton Beddoes for being with
2: us too. Great to talk to you. Bye. Great to talk to you both. Thank you. And
1: we want to know what you think. Does the IMF have the tools to save the day this time or is it every country for itself? And in the days of home working from the grand institutions to the rest of us, are you working in your pyjamas? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio with your thoughts about that interview. And for more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams